This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I said, shoot the 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there and live a past period, you can hear and just lay down and do it. <laughs> Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to the stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to Get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome back, folks, to the finale of this season of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who lived and worked here. My name's Anthony, and I am in the trenches in the Jake Curtis Earl Weapons Museum with Samuel. Hey, Anthony. How's it going? Oh, not too bad. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Just gearing up for the holidays, but I have to end with one very sad episode. We're here also with Skye, who's down in Texas, who's uh, phoning in. Hi, how's it going? Good. What's going on, Sky? How's the weather down there? <laughs> Today, actually, it was kind of it is kind of a really weird anomaly. It's supposed to be a high of like seventy something, but it it has been in the, like the high fifties, mid sixties. So it really <laughs> it's been a really nice Octoberish December around here. Oh. How are things? How are things at, um, at home in the cold and the mountains? Pretty wet and rainy. It's very nice. I love it. I love this. And a little, uh, you know, a little bit dreary skies. The mm. leaves are all down, and all the yard work is taken care of finally. <laughs> Just yeah. waiting for some snow. <laughs> oh, hopefully we have a little bit of a white Christmas, or at least snow around Christmas time, because yeah. I will be home for that. I'll be in the Tetons, so I'm guaranteed a white Christmas. Ooh, yes, you are. Where in the Tetons are you going to be? So we're, I'm going to be spending the first half of the holiday in Madison, um, and then I'll spend the second half of the holiday in Victor. And and Victor is a snow globe. It, it is like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what you see on on holiday cards, you know, just big pine trees covered in snow, just oh, cool. absolutely gorgeous. Two years ago, I... For the holidays, I got snowed in there, and we got trapped an extra week, and I had to call and get people to cover all my tours and stuff. I'm hoping that doesn't happen mostly. I'm, I'm a, a little bit hoping. <laughs> well, that sounds very fun. I'm Holidays are coming. They're very fun. Yeah. Let's... let's um... I can't even find a way to transition because the holidays and the episode that we have prepared are fundamentally opposed to each other. <laughs> well... I know both of these stories are going to be very dark today, but that being said, I have been really anticipating this episode as a fan of the show for years now. This is, this is undeniably a hard story, but one I've been curious about since, since day one working at the pen. Which yeah. one? Which story? Whose story, Sam? <clears throat> uh, Ed Rice. Um, I'm, your story I'm a little more afraid of, if I'm being honest, Sky. Yeah. So sad. Ed Rice, uh, I have a dark curiosity about yours I'm, I'm a little afraid for. Yeah. 
We're not crying, yeah. just in case anybody <laughs> not hears yet. us sobbing. <laughs> Gosh, I, I genuinely might cry during it. I cannot guarantee it, like, that I will be holding it together. Oh. All right, well, why don't we get started then, Sky? Okay, I will start us off. And again, we just had a very nice uh, dialogue about how dark this episode is going to be. I do want to preface my story, and I will preface it several different times because... This is actually, I think, one of the worst crimes, especially among the women, and it is against a child. You might be interested, maybe I talk a little bit about Melba. If you want to know about Melba, you could um, definitely listen up to the point that I talk about her crime, but if you want to skip the description of her crime and what happens after, I totally do not blame you. So, with that said, today we are talking about number 7035, Ethelyn Irene Peterson. My sources of today are her inmate file from, of course, the Idaho State Archives, newspaper.com records, ancestry.com records, cityofmelba.org, Melba Valley Historical Society at melbahistoricalsociety.com, an article titled How One Group is Preserving Idaho History by Mapping Melba's Petroglyphs by Samantha Wright on Boise State Public Radio News, the old City of Melba website archived on the Wayback Machine, which is an article titled 10,000 Years of Human History at Celebration Park, Melba ID by Henry Allen from Northwest Travel and Life, and then just some uh, brief facts, uh, number facts from the Wikipedia articles on Melba and the Archaic Period in North America. So, Ethelyn Irene Peterson was born Ethelyn Irene Burnham, I think. This name is mentioned on her find a grave, but I couldn't find any other evidence of this last name. She was born on November 11th, 1913, in St. Paul, Minnesota. We know that her mother was Clella Evelyn Warner, but there is no mention of a father. I couldn't find a marriage record for Clella prior to Evelyn's birth, and there is no father listed. Like there, it was a not a birth certificate that I found, but uh, it was mentioned uh, in other sources. So in the 1910 census, which is just about two and a half, three years before Evelyn was born, Clella was just 14 years old. So she was 17, 18 uh, when Ethelyn was born. So with her giving birth at such a young age, there is the possibility that perhaps Ethelyn was a result of like a love affair or a boyfriend or something like that that didn't result in marriage. But again, I don't have proof one way or the other. So we know her mother, don't know anything about her father. At some point, probably about the time, around the time Ethelyn was three, Clella married a man named Claude Russell. In 1916, Ethelyn's half-brother Robert was born. In 1918, her another half-brother, Leonard, was born. And in 1919, a half-sister, Mary, was born. So now she has three siblings, and she's the oldest uh, by about three years. In 1920, the family were living in Dakota City, Nebraska, where her stepfather worked for the railroad. By 1930, they had moved to Dewey, Oklahoma, where Claude was working as a farmer. So this is clearly a very working-class, blue-collar family. I don't have a lot of information about her childhood. She only went to school until about the eighth grade because her stepfather didn't want her to go to high school. And when she was 17, 18 years old, she left her childhood home, her parents' home, ostensibly. On her intake form, it said that her child opportunities were poor, but this is all the more details we have on her life growing up. So when she left home, she married Claude Dooley Courier in late 1931 or early 1932. Couldn't find a marriage certificate to confirm the date. And then her son Landa was born in September 1932. 
According to the 1940 census, in 1935, the family had lived in Pampa, Texas, but five years later, in 1940, they were living in Brooks, Oregon. In July of 1940, her daughter Priscilla was born. Around 1942, the family had moved to Twin Falls, and Claude, her husband, which obviously is not to be confused with Claude, her stepfather, had taken up a job as a truck driver there in Twin. Sadly, on September 18, 1943, Claude died after being in the hospital for a week. His death record says, I think it says because doctor's handwriting, I believe it was encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain, and prolonged paralysis. And so that would make it seem like it was an accident of some kind. On one of her intake forms, it did state that she had previous major injuries from a bus accident. It didn't say anything else about that incident, and I couldn't find anything in the newspapers about it. So there is, of course, the possibility that those two accidents are related, or I should say the accident and Claude's death. But all the information I could find was that he had been in the hospital for a week prior to his death. So, at just 30 years old, Evelyn becomes a widow with two young kids, 11 and 3, and I think that situation, I think, understandably starts to stress her out. After her incarceration, in fact, Evelyn said that Claude's death was, quote, the beginning of my trouble, end quote. His death was so shocking and difficult for Evelyn to comprehend that her doctor advised that she take several weeks to do nothing but rest. But with her young kids, she couldn't just drop her responsibilities, so she had to keep going without taking any major rest. She goes on for about two years as a single mom, and on October 30th, 1945, she married Philip Wayne Peterson in Jerome County, Idaho. Philip Peterson was born to Frank and Gertrude Peterson in Fort Stockton, Texas, which is uh, about 300 miles northwest-ish of San Antonio in the western part of the state. He was the fourth of nine kids. Interestingly, all of his sisters had names that started with V. So there was Vera, Violet, Vivian, Valta, and Vada. <laughs> a lot of Vs. The last one, Vada, it might have also been Vita. It's um, a lot but of Vs. Interestingly, none of the boys' names shared any first letters. So there was Philip, Frank, Stanley, and Robert. Which is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> and of all the letters, why V? That's like one of the hardest letters to find names for. Anyway, Philip grew up in Missouri, and he moved to Twin Falls at some point between 1940 and 1942. In 1942, Philip's son, Philip Wayne Peterson Jr., was born in Roy, Missouri, about 200 miles east of Douglas County, where Philip Sr. had grown up. There is some question as to exactly who Philip Jr.'s mother was. I found one document that stated his mother's name was Goldie Jenkins, but this is the only document that mentioned her name. On Ancestry, there is a Goldie Jenkins from Douglas County who would have been about 17 or 18 in 1942, but I don't have enough evidence to say that this is for sure her. And I also don't have any evidence to suggest that Philip Sr. and Goldie were married, but of course it's possible that they were. Then, in 1942, Philip Sr. enlisted in the Army and served during World War II. He was discharged in October 1945, and ten days after his discharge, he married Ethel and Irene Peterson, and they started their family, their life as a family, I should say, in Melba, Idaho. So according to Ethelyn, her son Landa really struggled to get along with Philip Sr. and Philip Jr., and so there was a lot of discord in the house. 
And so after they move in together and all of this fighting is happening, she says, quote, my health became much worse. My mind was never at rest. I was under a doctor's care, so numbed and paralyzed I was unable to do things I should. I consulted my husband and my mother. Both seemed to think I was taking it too seriously, end quote. And I think because Landa is having trouble getting along with the family, Ethelyn asked her sister Mary to take Landa into her home, and Landa was about 13 years old at this point. And on December 22nd, 1945, Mary wrote Ethelyn a letter saying, quote, I hate to write such a letter as this, but I think you ought to know the truth. We can't do anything with Landa, end quote. So she goes on to explain that he's skipping school and he's causing a lot of trouble and havoc within the family. So she tells a story of how at one point he starts to complain about pains in his legs and they took him to the doctor and the doctors ran all of these tests to try to figure out what was wrong with him. They couldn't figure it out. And later he admitted he made the pain up just to get out of school. At another point, he turned the clocks back like turned them all back to the point that Mary's husband almost lost his job because he was late for work. Another thing she said is that Mary had bought him a nice suit, but, quote, he just makes fun of it, so I am going to take it back, end quote. And then Mary also included a letter that Landa wrote to Ethelyn himself. So this letter reads, quote, Dear Mom, well, Xmas holidays are here again, and I out of school till January the 2nd. We drawed names down at school, and I got a book. Also, I got a dart game. Don't send any more things right away, but don't let the kids tear things up. I might be home sooner than you think. Whenever you write a letter, don't say anything about the Petersons. All of them stink. And if you ever change Priscilla's name, when I get home, I'll clean up on a bunch of people, and I'm not a kidden either. I don't care if old man Peterson does carry and stuff. When I get there, I go in to fix him where he can't. And that's underlined. And that's the end of the letter. So, clearly... Not all is well in Ethelyn's life with her kids and with her husband. Now, Ethelyn's file also contains something I have never seen in any other file. It is a letter written by Ethelyn prior to her crime that is in no way connected. It doesn't mention anything about the crime. It's literally just a letter that she wrote to a friend it's kind of amazing to have a letter like this that just talks about like what she's doing every day and the way that she's feeling and like her insecurities. And this is like just months before her crime. So this is a letter she wrote from Melba on June 21st, 1946. The handwriting is very difficult to understand. I think then it is written to her friend named Isla Hill. We learn from a letter from Ethelyn's mother, written soon after Ethelyn's arrest, that Isla Hill was a childhood friend of Ethelyn's who, quote, was more of an older sister than a friend during the years of depression when she and her first husband had hard times together, end quote. So the letter says, quote, Dear Isla, hell, it's most like living at Twin Falls. I never see or hear anything of you anymore. How are all of you and what are you doing now? We are pretty well. I took another nervous spell a few days ago. I'm having quite a time trying to conquer myself. I went to the doctor again yesterday. He thought I was sure improving in looks, but said my blood count is still low. It is 64. He gave me another 100 iron capsules. He didn't seem to want me to continue with the nerve medicine. No doubt it could be habit-forming, don't you suppose? Guess I'll start canning some of these days. The apricots will soon be ready. I have beets ready also. My peas got full of worms, and they were so pretty. Our tomatoes are loaded, some good-sized tomatoes, too. We sure have a pretty garden. Tiny cucumbers, too. Also peppers and dill. We are eating carrots. They are so sweet and tender now. 
We pulled our first batch of radish and are eating on our second ones and must plant some more. Our evenings are so short we never get everything done anymore. Got a card from Lando, said he was having a swell time, so I guess he's happy. But it will be sad someday when he wakes up and finds he can't make a living like that. I don't do much of anything anymore, but it's not because I'm having a swell time. I quit trying to sew and haven't had all my ironing done in ages. I hoed corn six days. Outside of being stiff and sore, it's the most relaxation I've had since Phil and I married. I'll never be any good as a wife and mother anymore. I know that much for sure. Last Saturday was Phil's birthday. I made him a cake and put candles on it. He said he couldn't remember our having a birthday cake before. It surprised him, as he never mentioned it, and neither did I. I must fix some cornbread for supper. We'll write more later. Haven't heard a word from Peterson since we were at Twin Falls. Guess they all soured. Mama, Hubby, and Leonard were leaving for Idaho last Saturday to hunt a location somewhere by Lewiston. I haven't heard a word since they left, so I'm sort of looking for them one of these days. Susie is at her folks, said they were starting back about the 8th, and she'd see us then, so I expect they'll spend the weekend. And this is all just like social stuff, but again, it, it gets at how much is going on with her. Yeah, and I love that lens of just like an average, everyday, yeah. kind of work in the fields and going out hunting. Yeah. And this is just Idaho, you know, Melba yeah, yeah. in the 40s. Yeah, like. exactly. And, and we'll get more. So she goes on and she says, Isla, if you get a chance to get me a can of pineapple, I'll do something for you. You know, something mysteriously happened to mine that I was saving while I lived over there. And I never get, a, and I never get in on the scarce items anymore as I'm a stranger here. We did get a new tire the other day, though. I told Philip he wasn't having any luck. I was going to work on some garage man sympathy, and so I did, and I got a tire. And so here we see that even though this is in 46, this is just post-war. And so there's still things like pineapple and new tires are expensive and they're difficult to get. Um, so again, just interesting. So a couple more paragraphs. So she says, the wind sure is blowing now, but I've enjoyed the cooler weather. I can't stand the heat anymore. It was cool all the while I hoed corn. The doctor sure looked funny when I told him I hoed corn. I hunted all over Nampa for Priscilla's Sunday shoes and for school later. All I could find was a pair of chubby brown Oxfords. I think they're ugly. She thinks they are grand. They are sure cause for dressing up. There's a little bit of difficult handwriting in the next couple sentences. She says, my, things are going to get high in the stores. Can just see things go up. Wanted to go see Vita and your mom, I think, but didn't want to go by myself. And they are hanging so he couldn't get off. He got paid for decoration day. I got 75 cents for hoeing, made $30.75, and it's most all gone, too. Just one more trip to town. Why don't you folks ever come over? Let me know when you can come, and I'll fix dinner for you some Sunday. I want to... I think this word says detassel? Corn? I don't know what that is. So better come before that, as you might not get much to eat. Don't know if I can get Vita to sew any for Priscilla's school clothes or not. She didn't talk very much like she wanted to. I oiled my machine and it runs like a new one. Guess it's the first time it's been oiled since Claude oiled it almost three years ago. How are you coming along with your sugar supply? I'm not doing as good since we can't buy honey or syrup and now can't buy flour. Well, it's Saturday morning. I guess I've wrote all there is to write and I've sent this down to the mailbox by Philip. Write me a few lines anyway. Hope to see you someday not too far off. Love, Ethelyn. So, I'm going to leave you to ruminate on this letter while we talk about Melba a little bit. Melba is a village in southwestern Idaho, about 20 miles south of Nampa. And so it's about southwest of Boise by about 30 miles or so. And Melba is platted about a mile from the Snake River. 
Melba has some of the evidence of some of the earliest residents of the area we now know as Idaho. About four miles outside of town, on a road called Map Rock Road, you can find indigenous petroglyphs carved into solid rock. These petroglyphs have been dated back to the Archaic Era, which is roughly 8,000 to 1,000 BC, and the Archaic Period this is a nerdy thing that I wrote down, but the archaic period is characterized by subsistence economies, which means economies based on subsisting or supporting oneself on a basic level, and then it roughly ended with the adoption of sedentary farming. So basically it goes from uh, economies that are just basically community level and you exist by supporting yourself just from your own food, and then ends with the adoption of farming in one place. And so then we start to see um, larger agriculture, cultivation, things like that. No one knows what the symbols on this rock mean. Some people believe it's a map, which is why the road it's on is called Map Rock Road. But no matter what it means, the indigenous peoples consider the symbol sacred. And you can visit Celebration Park, which is about 15 miles away from the petroglyphs, to find out more information about the archaic period in relation to the petroglyphs. My dad and I one time went on a mountain bike ride out in the Owyhees, and we stopped and, and took a look at these. It's not a very big thing. It's very cool, and just a reminder of the indigenous life and existence before white settlers, and how different the landscape would look at that time. As a historian, I love to think about that kind of stuff. The indigenous nations most associated with the area are the Shoshone-Bannock, whose reservation is now about 250 miles east of Melba. We don't know too much about early European settlers in the area. It was somewhat near the Oregon Trail, but mostly it was just unsettled land. Around 1912, a businessman and entrepreneur named Clayton C. Todd learned from a friend in Weezer, Idaho, that the land was selling some land about 70 miles south of town. So in August, Todd purchased 160 acres of land and laid out a town naming it Melba after his daughter, who was just three years old at the time. Soon, a small community popped up with everything from grocery stores to lumber yards. First and foremost, though, Melba was and is a farming community. Just after World War I, it gained a reputation for raising high-quality seed corn. Others around raised carrot seed, onion seed, and alfalfa seed. And so because of this, this area gains the nickname the Seed Heart of America. I had no idea. In 1949, Melba was severely affected by the polio and infantile paralysis epidemic. So the community banded together and held a polio auction in January 1950, raising $2,000 for polio research, which is $25,000 in 2023. This was so successful that the community continued to hold auctions in the coming years. According to the old Melba website, they held the auction every year since 1950, and by 2016, the auction, now called the Melba Community Auction, raised $30,000 every year. Obviously, this is no longer for polio, but for children's organizations like Little League and the Boys and Girls Club, and it also contributes to medical research organizations like for cancer and heart disease, obviously like they once did for polio. That's did really say, cool that that yeah. still continues. Like, I yeah, have yeah. not heard about that, but uh, anybody in the area, support that, or if you need help, I, I think that'd be a great organization to look at for. For sure. So as I said, Melba is still predominantly a farming community, but several residents now do commute to Boise or Nampa for work. And the estimated 2019 population is the highest that Melba has ever seen with 558. 
Ethelin lived in Melba less than a decade after Melba first appeared on the census, which was in 1940. And so we know that when she lived there, the population was just about around 200. So that is just our little foray, brief foray into Melba. So now we're going to go back into Ethelin's story. Even though I put a disclaimer at the top, this now is where I'm going to get into the more specific details of the crime against a child. So again, please take care of yourself, proceed with caution. This is going to be very difficult. To sum up, in August 1946, Ethelyn was married to Philip Wayne Peterson and they were living in Melba. So in her home, she may or may not have her 13-year-old son land. I don't think she does, but we know things are kind of in flux with him. Her six-year-old daughter, Priscilla, and she also has her three-year-old stepson, Philip Wayne Peterson Jr., and we know from the letter, we know from something she said after her crime, she has said on several different occasions she is suffering from some what feels like pretty major mental health episodes, perhaps at this time. So this is the story that I have put together based on several different sources, including her own statements, newspaper articles from the Post Register, the Spokesman Review, and the Idaho Statesman. So in the days leading up to what happens, Ethelyn had been battling Philip Jr. with wetting the bed. Now, I myself am not a parent, but um, I have friends who are, and this process does seem super frustrating for, I think, the parent and for the child. But of course, this in no way, no matter how frustrating it is, it does not excuse what happens next. So on September 12th, 1946, Philip Jr. got up from his nap and had, unfortunately, wet the bed. Ethelyn, clearly frustrated, wanted to punish him. She said at one point, quote, I was just going to correct him. I was just going to stick with him, end quote. And at one point, the prosecuting attorney asks her if she was talking to him, like letting him know, like, I'm going to stay on you until we fix this. And she said, quote, he just said he wouldn't do it anymore. And I said, oh, yes, you will. You have been telling me that all the time. So it's unclear exactly when she said these words, but it does seem... Like, this is a conversation she could have had, like, when he got up and found out that he had wet the bed. The punishment she decided on was to, quote-unquote, correct him, and it was with physical abuse. Again, heavy, heavy stuff. Please get out if you need to. So at this point, Ethelyn forced Philip Jr. out of the house to a bridge that spanned a ditch behind their house. And at this point, he was dressed only in a pair of shorts. There's some question as to, like, if it's his underwear or if it's, like, pajama shorts or swimming shorts or something. But it doesn't really matter. So once there, she grabbed him by his right hand and his right foot and dunked him into the water twice. She then, like, lets go of his hand, grabs his other ankle, and bangs the back of his head against the side of the bridge about two or three times by her own estimation. And during all of this, while she's saying this, she claims that she doesn't really remember much about the event. She would say things like, I couldn't say but, or the best I can remember is, or I don't think I did but. And so when she says things like two or three times, this is where she says like, I don't know, but I think it was this. So then she has him by his ankles. She then grabs his left ankle and his left hand and dunked him in the water from the other side of the bridge. And then she lets go of him and drops him into the ditch. Thankfully, the water is not very deep. Here is the official transcript from one of her interviews she did with V.K. Jepson, who's the Cannon County prosecuting attorney. And this explains what happens next. 
The best I can remember, he was sitting, and I told him to get up. When you let loose, he was sitting? Yes, right by the bridge there. And he crawled out? He more or less walked out. You helped him out? Yes, I took him by the arm, and I told him to get for the house, and I gave him a kick. Where did you kick him? On the bottom, and he went down. After he went down, did you kick him some more? I don't know. If I kicked him any more, I don't know. I don't know if I kicked him or pushed him when he got up and fell to the gate. You might have kicked him and caused the bruises over the body where he went down the first time? Yes, I might have. I was just going the limit, it seemed like. Well, that would probably be the only way you could explain the body bruises. Unless he had some of them before. He might have had some of them before? I know he had bruises on his leg. You mean down below the knees, those little narrow stripes? Yes. And the others probably came from kicking? It could have been. I just let loose, that's all. And when he got up that time... He staggered off, and I went to screaming. So the story we get here is that Philip Jr. stands up out of the water, tries to keep walking, and she either kicks him or pushes him into the post of the gate, into their yard, after which he kind of falls, like, next to the gate. So from this point, he pulls himself up and, quote-unquote, as she said, goes crooked. So he starts staggering and then falls after about four or five steps. And she claimed, quote, when he staggered, the awfulest feeling crept on me, end quote. I'm not totally clear on the order of the next series of events, but here, to the best of my ability, is what she did at some point between him falling and taking him to the hospital. So after he falls and staggers and this, quote unquote, awfulest feeling creeps upon her, she picks him up, she takes him inside the house, and the one thing I can't figure out about this interview is there's a weird amount of talk about a sink. So here is the segment of the interview where they talk about that. So Ethelyn says, I told you about trying to take him in the sink and trying to wash him. Did you actually have him in the sink? Yes, because she had him face up. I put him face up. And then I thought he was drowned. I thought that maybe I'd put his head down in the water in the ditch. I thought he was drowned. You said once the other day that you had him in the sink. Then you said you just thought of putting him in the sink? I put him in there, but I didn't wash him. At the end of that, I think what she's saying is she takes him inside. She puts him face up in the sink to try to clean everything off of him and like make sure he hadn't drowned before she took him to the hospital but then like this whole series and jeppesen says you said the other day that you had him in the sink but then now you just said you just thought of it again she kind of goes back to the, like if i remember correctly or i can't remember she does this a lot so as far as i can tell she sends an unnamed girl to go alert philip senior who presumably is at work so from there they go to the hospital and philip jr was at the hospital for 13 hours before succumbing to his injuries. And he passed away on September 13th, 1946. And she was arrested three days later on September 16th. On September 18th, Ethelyn wrote down the details of the crime, which worked essentially as a confession. And she gave many of the same details as she did during the interview with Jepson, but she made one important change in her written confession that I think might really change our perception of the kind of mental conditions Ethelyn might have been under when she took Philip Jr. out to the creek that day. The first sentence of her confession says, quote, The child had been wetting the bed, and I took him to the irrigation ditch with the intention of dipping him into it for punishment, end quote. However, she crossed out wetting the bed, and over it wrote masturbating. 
we know that in her verbal confession, she admitted that she did it because he was wetting the bed. So, this seems to me to be an incredibly deliberate move, because what that does is, in her mind, she's hoping it moralizes her justification for doing it. What I think I mean by this is that I think she hoped that by changing the reason for her punishment from something that all children go through, which is bedwetting, to which this reaction is an extreme overreaction, to something that had sort of morals attached to it, like masturbation. And so in doing this, she's hoping it might come off as like a little more sympathetic or maybe more of a like, well, he was doing this sinful thing and I was just trying to correct him. To be clear, I'm not saying she's necessarily even consciously trying to add morals. I think she's just trying to find a way to maybe lessen her coming sentence and is hoping by changing the reason for this punishment, it might put her in a better light. She would claim she tried to do it to cure him of masturbation only one other time in writing in February 1948. And the other thing to remember, of course, about this claim of masturbation, this child is three years old. That, to me, is one of the worst things about this. This whole story makes his way into the public with the publishing of an article in the Post Register from Idaho Falls on September 17, 1946. And this article most clearly and thoroughly covered the details of the crime. And so here's some details that I find particularly interesting from this article. During the questioning she did with Jepson, she allegedly blurted out at one point, quote, I did it, I did it, what will all my friends think of me now? End quote. Jepson told the press that the autopsy showed, quote, five severe head injuries, any one of which could have been fatal. The boy's body was black and blue from head to foot. End quote. Jeppesen is also quoted as saying that the boy, quote, had been subjected to a general course of mistreatment in which his father participated at all times, end quote. <sighs> Ethelin waived her preliminary hearing on September 21st, but had allegedly, quote, expressed willingness to enter a guilty plea in court to a lesser charge than first-degree murder. She told Jeppesen, he said, that she wanted the court action as quickly as possible, end quote. Her arraignment was held two days later, and she was charged with murder in the first degree. She was given two days, the statutory limit, in which to prepare her answers to the charges. The Idaho Statesman reported on September 25th, quote, sobbing, I didn't do it the way they said I did. Mrs. Peterson collapsed Monday as she left the courtroom after being taken before District Judge T.E. Buckner, end quote. In the answer to the charges, she said, with a catch in her throat, I'm not guilty of deliberately taking that child's life, end quote. And her trial was set for November 18th. How are you guys feeling? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not good. This is like a three-year-old. It's so heartbreaking in any sort of childhood abuse. Is... And, like, I know so many people who struggled with bedwetting much later than that. Like, I feel like bedwetting among a th three years old is, like, pretty common. That's not that it's far so away common. from diapers. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so crazy. On October 2nd, the Ogden Standard Examiner reported that the murder charges against Phillips Sr. had been dropped, but he instead faced charges of neglect and cruelty to a minor child, and he was set to stand trial on October 18th. 
Two days before Philip Sr. was supposed to stay on trial, Jeppesen filed an amended information before the judge withdrawing the first-degree murder charge against Ethelin and charging her instead with second-degree murder. And so to this charge, she pleaded guilty. And on October 21st, two days after Philip Sr. was supposed to be tried, but because of the amended information, they ended up pushing his back. So on October 21st, 1946, Judge Buckner sentenced Ethelin to 25 to life for second degree murder. And this is from the Times News from Twin Falls. Quote, Mrs. Peterson, who previously pleaded guilty, fell into the arms of her attorney and a Salvation Army worker. She was taken to a prison cell where she was revived before being driven to the state prison in Boise. Mrs. Peterson was in a hysterical condition, officer said, end quote. About a month later, Philip Sr. was found innocent of charges of cruelty and neglect. From the statesman, quote, jurors reported they were unanimous on the first ballot in that ignorance in proper methods of child raising was indicated, but contended that the state had failed to prove its case of willful neglect and cruelty, end quote. So they're saying there is evidence of child neglect, but to say that it was willful, they did not prove that case. And so... Ethelon Peterson entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on the same day of her sentencing, just as the article reported, October 21st, 1946. So her intake form, Ethelon Irene Peterson, crime, murder in the second degree, sentenced 25 to life, received from Canyon County, born November 12th, 1913, height 60 and 3 fourths inches, weight 111, build small, eyes gray, hair, dark blonde, complexion medium, occupation, housewife. She has very minimal markups on her Bertion, her vaccination scar, and she has a cut on her lower right forearm. Everything is listed in terms of formation or uh, as regular, nose, ears, chin, all regular. So she was just one of four inmates in the women's ward when she entered, and throughout her term she served with 12 other inmates, including Verna Keller, who was also in for second-degree murder, and she also spent a few months with Elizabeth Lottie Lacey, who is the only woman in for first-degree murder, and I have covered both of those women prior. Her mother, who I think her nickname, we know her name was Clella, but I think her nickname was Nellie, wrote Warden Lou Clapp pretty consistently throughout Ethelin's incarceration, and the first one we have in the file comes from March 1947. In it, her mother talks about how she was bitter about how Ethelin was treated in the justice system and how she hated to watch Philip Sr., now found innocent, was getting to enjoy Ethelin's things like her car. But then the mother thanks Warden Clapp for being helpful up to that point. And so he replies, quote, Upon Mrs. Peterson's arrival here, we found her to be in a very nervous condition. However, under the care of our prison physician, she has again recovered so that her condition is now such that he feels she is almost normal again. However, the types of letters you have been writing to her have not helped this condition because, after receiving your letters, she seems to become very despondent, and it sometimes takes several days to snap her out of it. I would suggest that in the future you write her letters of encouragement and do not continually bring out matters pertaining to the crime and the trouble leading up to this particular crime. I realize that it may be necessary to say certain things to her. However, I believe she is capable of making her own decisions regarding certain matters, and some of those things could probably be left unsaid until her complete recovery, end quote. Then, on January 28, 1947, Clella or wrote a letter to Governor C.A. Robbins, part of which said, quote, I should like very much to call to the attention of you and this board that my daughter was ill for some time prior to the accident, which resulted to her being committed to Boise. 
When I saw her in 43, both before and after the death of her first husband in Twin Falls ID, I knew she was not well. The two years she continued to reside there and support her two fatherless children, I believing she had trouble holding a job on account of her ill health, end quote. She goes on to ask Governor Robbins if he could grant Ethelin a new trial so that she could get her name cleared. The governor couldn't do anything about it, so her letter was forwarded to the Board of Pardons. In August 1947, Nellie wrote to Warden Clapp saying, quote, Ethelin has now been with you almost one year, and I know you do not think she is the kind of person the Idaho Free Press of Nampa accused her of being. And unfortunately, I don't have a letter to the Free Press from this time, so I don't know what the Free Press was saying. So then she goes on to say, Since reading my letter, do you feel that she was committed to Boise after a fair trial? Can your board do more for her than a trial could? Can you clear her, her name of such a slayer? Warden Clapp replied, Quote, you asked me if I thought she was committed to this institution after a fair trial. I must say that I do not pass judgment on an individual's guilt or innocence. That is all determined before a person arrives here. My duty here as warden is to take care of your daughter and all other inmates under my jurisdiction and to make them as comfortable as possible as long as they are under my care, end quote. And so Warden Clapp coming in like the boss that he is. Then on April 16th, 1948, Warden Clapp sent a note to Mrs. W.J. Honan of American Falls, Idaho, which reads as follows, quote, Dear Madam, we are mailing you today under separate cover, chairback covering set. The price of these is $6.50 each. Please send postal money order made payable to myself in the amount of thirteen twenty, as the insurance was $0.10 cents and the postage $0.10. Cents. As soon as this money is received, it will be placed to Mrs. Peterson's account on our books, end quote. And underneath the typed part is a handwritten note that says, Dear Warden Clapp, just a note of appreciation for your part in my receiving the covers. They are loves, and I have had so many compliments on them, end quote. And it is signed Mrs. W.J. Honan. And so this exchange sounds like Ethelin may have sewn some chair covers, which were then sent to the Honans. I don't know if the Honan family is connected or if this is something maybe like a rehabilitation kind of program that the penitentiary would implement in the 50s and 60s where she's putting her skills to use and making money for when she gets out. I really don't know, but I thought that was a really interesting thing that we see in her file that we don't see in a lot of other women's files. For most of 1947 and 1948, Ethelin quietly served her time. Through her lawyer, on October 14, 1948, Ethelin made an application for discharge and release in the January 1949 Board of Corrections meeting. For this, the Canyon County prosecuting attorney, quote, strongly opposed any consideration of clemency at this time, end quote. She was not discharged in the session, but the board did commute her sentence from 25 years to life to just 10 years. On May 5, 1949, State Senator Herman Welker, previously a lawyer from Payette, gave a voluntary statement to the parole board and was interviewed by Warden Clapp, Vice Chairman Robert Schofield, and Secretary H.P. Fales. Again, there's a lot of things in her case that I've never seen anywhere else, not just the brutality of the crime, but everything that is in her file before, during, and after her incarceration. It is, I've never seen a file quite like this. So Herman Welker goes on to say that he was not Ethelin's lawyer in her case, but he had been retained to defend her husband, so he was familiar with her case. He ostensibly wanted to just give more evidence in her case, which may help her get out sooner. He said he was, quote, not a paid representative. I'm here voluntarily upon my own. I didn't accept five cents expense, end quote. He then says, Quote, I interviewed Mrs. Peterson in the county jail no less than eight times in Caldwell, and the times I interviewed her was brought about by the sole fact I never got a consistent statement from her as to what the facts were. 
She appeared to me that at that time as a confused mental case, end quote. He says that one day he was touring the penitentiary grounds with Warden Clapp and Senator Jensen, and Warden Clapp allowed Senator Welker to speak to her. And he says, quote, I asked her if she remembered me, and she said she didn't, and that added emphasis to the conclusion I have had all of the time that the time of the commission of the alleged offense and for weeks thereafter this applicant was in a serious, confused mental state, end quote. In his opinion, Ethelin should not have had to stand trial because, quote, the mental capacity of this woman was such that she was incapable of forming any intent to kill anyone, end quote. During the interview, Clapp asked if Senator Walker noticed any difference between when he interviewed Ethelin when she was in the county jail and when he interviewed her a few years later in 1949. And he says, quote, I can answer that I was never so surprised in my life about her improved mental condition. Without making an examination, and I am not qualified to do that anyway, she doesn't look or act like the same person. Clapp asks, did she recognize you? And Walker says, no. Warden Clapp was also present, and I asked her if you remember me, Mrs. Peterson, and she answered me, no, I don't believe I've ever seen you before, and I'm sure she had no occasion to misrepresent. Robert Schofield says, would you move to have her put in an insane asylum than here? And Welker says, I only talked to her once since the plea of guilty. I believe that woman is cured. I don't believe she is insane now. I do believe she was at the time of this offense, but now not subject to commitment to a mental institution. Then a letter in her file comes from May 6th, 1949. Quote, on April 12, 1949, I wrote to you asking that further consideration be given my application for pardon at the board's quarterly session to be held in July of this year. But because of the new information on my case given you yesterday by the testimony of Senator Welker and Payette, I hereby withdraw my application for pardon, and I ask that the State Board of Corrections, sitting as such, grant me a parole or release from the Idaho State Penitentiary in August 1949. End quote. So there are no other documents that fully spell out exactly what evidence she's talking about, other than the fact that the evidence he's giving is like she seems way better, but again, he's a senator and not a doctor. So if they're using that as evidence, I find that very curious. I also wonder if there might have been some kind of plea deal or if they told her like listen you're not going to get a pardon but you might be able to get out earlier than you would if you asked for a parole instead so believe it or not she was given a conditional parole on October 21st 1949 and this is none too soon because four months prior to her release Mrs. Serena Bowl who had Priscilla, who of course is Ethelin's daughter, in her custody while Ethelin was incarcerated, Mrs. Bull wrote Word and Clap asking for some advice, and she says, quote, Maybe you already know why the welfare visited her and talked to her about us adopting her little girl, but I'm sure you folk there have some idea of what kind of a problem I'm facing having her little girl and having had her long enough that I'm interested and much concerned about her future welfare, end quote. Warden Clapp basically said that that was something she had to discuss with Ethelin, that he himself would not have any stake in that kind of conversation. According to her parole summary sent in by her agent, Fred B. Davis, on January 21st, 1953, here's what he said she did over the next several years. When she was released from prison, she returned to Philip Peterson, and they moved into a trailer home on a tract of land across the Boise River south of Notice, Idaho. And Notice is in Canyon County, about eight miles southwest of Parma. Her daughter was back in her custody, according to the 1950 census, and the Times News from Twin Falls reported that on February 7, 1950, that Lando had enlisted in the Air Force and had been sent to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. At some time in 1951, Ethelin and Philip had another daughter, quote, which Ethelin relates is a joy and comfort to her, end quote. 
Around 1952, the family moved back to Boise, paying $15 in rent. Now, let's play our favorite game to maybe lighten things up a little bit. How much do you guys think in 1952, $15 in rent was in two days? $200. (laughs) I'm going to go $125. You guys are actually kind of right in the middle. It's about $174. Can you guys imagine paying $174 for rent? Wouldn't be bad. Wouldn't be bad at all. Wow. I think I pay yeah. more on my utilities. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah my than that. <laughs> oh, man. The $15 in rent, Philip was working as a mechanic for Pumice Products Company for a salary of $1.10 an hour, working 54 hours a week. That comes out to $59.40 a week, or roughly $680 a month. So they make... and they pay $15 in rent. Hello. Pumice Products Company was a concrete and pumice stone company that led the state in pumice building materials. Interesting. In January 1953, Fred Davis reported that Ethelyn and Philip were expecting yet another baby in June of that year. The couple were active in the local Nazarene church, and from her agent's report, quote, Here she relates that due to some notoriety, she received it notice, which did not help her in going to church. She talked to the minister and told him of her troubles, and so far she has been free from any adverse opinions or gossip, end quote. So basically she just goes to say that she was going to a church at notice, but because of what she'd done, she was having trouble fit in. So she found, she talked to the minister, and he kind of talked to everyone and was like, you guys need to be better about this. Finally, quote, Ethelyn relates that she is in good health, knows how to care for herself and keep from getting nervous, etc. She does not drive a car, as she has found that brings her to a nervous tension. Mrs. Peterson is worthy of your consideration and is recommended to receive her final discharge, end quote. So she was given her final release from parole five days later on January 26, 1953. So her total time in prison was just three years, and then she was on parole for another four years. That seems like nothing for the crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, a three-year-old boy, and she spends three years in prison. That's, that's heartbreaking. Wow. It's rough. That's Such rough. Such a short sentence. Mm-hmm. Especially when yeah. her original sentence was 25 to life. You'd think, like, mm-hmm. she would spend a third of 25 years at least. I don't know. Yeah. It did get bumped down, but I also wonder if so much of her case truly did revolve around her mental state at the time, which again, absolutely does not excuse what she did. Um, but I think enough people seem to say she is a completely different person now than she was when she came in. That's a positive sign Yeah, that yeah. she is better. I think this, this letter from her parole officer that she took her condition after this very seriously and did not put herself in positions that would potentially cause something like that to happen again. So after this, I don't find any major records of Ethelyn, but according to her obituary, she moved to Portland in the 1960s. She remained in Portland for the rest of her life. She was, quote, a homemaker and active member of the Nazarene Church who worked in support of its missions, end quote. She remained married to Philip for the rest of her life. He died in 2005. She died about four years later on January 4th, 2009. And she is buried next to Philip in the Willamette National Cemetery in Portland. According to her obituary, she was survived by 16 grandchildren, 21 great-grandchildren, and 7 great-great-grandchildren. One last note. 
I want to make is that if any members of her family happen to hear this, please know that any inaccuracies are not intended to be malicious or an attempt to be malicious at all. I really respect Ethelyn's journey, especially after her release. My story is told from sources that are all public record, and they can often tell a skewed story. So if this is a, a narrative that you feel needs correcting, and if any family member of any inmate I cover feels that I have misrepresented or or anything like that, please feel free to get in contact with us because we always want to hear the other side of the story. And and so all that to say, I think she presents a particularly nuanced and complicated story because the thing that she did is beyond comprehension. But I don't think we can fully say that she was a wholly evil person. Also, the shortness of her sentence is also perhaps a little bit of the justice system to some extent working as it should. I do think she showed enough difference that the prison authorities were willing to let her out and be assured that something like this would never happen again. And that in fact, while on her parole, she had two more children. This is not a clean cut easy story and in fact i would argue so many of the stories that we cover aren't yeah as, as somebody who's not a parent i can only imagine the stress of working like in a farm and raising a child who maybe maybe there's more to their relationship that that isn't relayed i think it was just kind of what they say that momentary lapse of sanity she was just so upset of dealing with this bedwetting and having to clean the sheets again and mm-hmm. and they heart they probably didn't have a washing machine she's having to hand do it every time yeah. um, and I bet it takes a couple scrubbings to like get the odor out like and again it's frustrating enough to just potty train your kid like mm-hmm. oh it seems hard <laughs> and and with all of the stress yeah it just builds up Man, it's it's just so heartbreaking to to find this story. But you know that there is that redemption at the end of this, and that mm-hmm. you know I didn't actually know that aspect of her story. I mm-hmm. she was just kind of marked as the child murderer in my brain before mm-hmm. you kind of shared the rest of that. So I really do like that you know she did change her way and become a loving mother and mm-hmm. uh, built a family after her sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a difficult story, Sky. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yes, thank you for hanging in there with me. That that middle section where you talk about the details is just, like, I think I cried a time or two trying to put it together. I do think she was genuinely like, I really don't remember it, but I think maybe this happened. And it, so it could come off as, like, self-preservation. And I, I think there's a possibility it could be. But I also think there's a possibility that she just kind of went into this state that she couldn't control. Anyway, I could I think I could kind of talk about this case all day because it is so nuanced and so complicated and interesting. It's one of those many stories that they kind of contribute to the entire history of the women in the Idaho penitentiary. Totally. Well, I guess, should we um, move on to uh, depressing story number two? I think so. 
Today, I am talking about Edward Rice, number 788. My sources are, of course, his prison file from the Idaho State Archives, the digitized Idaho Statesman provided by the Boise, Maine Library through Newsbank, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, Library of Congress Chronicling America, several obituaries from Findagrave.com that shared information about his family, a Library of Congress article about German immigration called A New Surge of Growth, the book Hanged by Kathy Dinard Hill, as well as the research she so kindly provided to us here at the site, and a couple of uh, Wikipedia articles on the history of Germany and the Langraviate of Hesse Castle. Edward Rice was born in Baltimore, Maryland on June 23, 1856 to John and Lydia Rice. According to an 1880 census I came across from Ancestry.com, Edward's father immigrated to the United States from Hesse Castle, which is in modern-day Germany. When Napoleon and the French army conquered the Prussians and Austrians, he created Westphalia and made Hesse Castle the capital of this new revolutionary enlightened government. This lasted from 1806 to 1813, when Napoleon was defeated. The region's political philosophy had transformed, and the German states developed a loose coalition. Uncertainty and inner turmoil led to an unstable region, and major uprisings in the late 1840s led to many Germans fleeing the country for the United States. According to a document on the Library of Congress, more than 10,000 immigrants arrived in the United States by 1832, and by the mid-1850s, that number jumped to nearly 200,000 immigrants. Edward's father, John, came to the U.S. sometime in the late 1930s, early 1940s. Ancestry.com records noted two different dates. John Rice entered the trade of saddle and harness making in Germany, which easily adapted to his new life in Baltimore, Maryland, in the young new country. He met Anna Lydia Riffle, the daughter of a renowned American Revolutionary War hero named Melchior Riffle, who fought in many battles for American independence. And I couldn't find their wedding date, but they had their first son, George L. Rice, on January 15, 1850. George was ambitious and became a prominent and well-educated man throughout his life. He graduated from Washington University in 1872, began work as a professor, a school director, councilman for McSherrytown, Pennsylvania, coroner of Adams County, Pennsylvania, and ran for state legislator. He was the firstborn son and filled all parents' dreams of a smart, talented, successful progeny. It took me a long time to tie these ends together. In George L. Rice's obituary, he is listed as the only son born to John and Lydia. In Edward Rice's intake file, he lists Dr. George L. Rice as his closest living relative in Hanover, Pennsylvania. He also lists when his parents died, his father when he was 22, which would have been around 1877-1878, when John Rice passed away, and his mother when he was 31 years old which would have been around 1887-1888, precisely when his mother, Lydia, passed away. When I found their obituaries and realized the dates all lined up exactly, I realized that Edward Rice was most likely disowned by his family. I couldn't find any specific instance in newspapers or elsewhere to describe some act that would have caused it. It may have been due to his crime, or he may have dishonored his family as a teenager. 
He later told Idaho authorities that he only took one year of school. He could read, but his file doesn't specify if he could write. And just based on a couple of documents later, I think that he could just do the most basic writing. He also told authorities that he left home at the age of 14. So with his birth in 1856, that would mean he began a life on his own around 1870. I just, I just like have to take a note to say that we are currently talking about someone who served at the old Idaho State Penitentiary whose grandfather was in the Revolutionary War. Exactly, yeah. You just forget that like America is so young. Seriously. The place where his father was from, Hess Castle, that was actually a uh, town that was full of basically mercenaries. And during the Revolutionary War, the British hired... Uh, a lot of German mercenaries to fight Americans, you know, Mm -hmm. fight these revolutionaries. And 25% of these German troops actually came from that town. And uh, so that's where you get, like, the idea of Hessians, you know, helping the the British, you know, fight the American Revolutionary War. So it's kind of interesting. You get both sides that... One of his father's, you know, Mm. grandfathers could have been one of these mercenaries that were coming fighting his his uh, his mother's grandfather, you know, his grandfather. That's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) I was like nerding out about this. I was just so amazed that, you know, we could tie somebody to this Revolutionary War period. It's just just crazy. That's bananas. Like, it's bananas. Like, I know that he would have come in well over a century ago, but really... 100 years ago for us is 1920 and that doesn't i mean it seems a long time ago but also not right yeah so (laughs) okay please continue at at about 14 ed rice leaves home and i think that he actually started working as a cigar maker i don't know about you guys i have a google phone and so i can use google lens and translate text and so i actually found some german newspapers from around this time just to see like you know what's going on and i was looking at like saddle makers and having it translate these german newspapers into english there were a lot of german saddle makers and cigar makers in this town and around this time there's a a cigar making union and they're like going on strike they're like fighting because a lot of european cigars are flooding the market and it's ruining the market and there are like literally people getting shot over the price of cigars and poor pay for cigar makers so it's it's kind of an interesting time i went down that whole rabbit hole i'm not going to subject you all to it but edward was probably just kind of learning his craft at this time that this is all going on in 1878 at age 22 edward enlisted into the united states army in harmony pennsylvania His occupation is listed as cigar maker. His eyes are listed as gray, his complexion was dark, and he was 5 feet 6 inches tall. A newspaper article noted, quote, Last night at 1130, about 100 recruits for the United States Army passed through this city en route for Standing Rock, Dakota Territory, where they will be assigned to the 17th United States Infantry. The boys were met at the depot by a number of their friends. They were in the jolliest spirits and seemed to think they would like the life of a soldier, end quote. His name was actually listed among these six young men who were heading west as soldiers in the United States Army. On March 21, 1880, he was discharged from the Army. 
The enlistment document remarked that he was discharged to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho for disability. Through my digging, I couldn't actually find what caused the disability. I know that men who served at Fort Coeur d'Alene, which was later called Fort Sherman, were creating telegraph lines that spanned through the panhandle into Washington. But Kathy Dinehard Hill actually found a report, and it said that Edward was incontinent, that he was wetting his bed. He had this issue where he couldn't control his bowels. Sky, I don't understand how we just keep making these weird connections. I know, we always do this. Yeah. Kathy found this document that reveals that this man, like, had this issue where he's literally just, he's, like, wetting the bed at night as an adult man in the Army. And so he, he, is, he is actually discharged from the military. It seems like he kind of still lives by these bases because on June 1st, 1883, Ed was playing poker at a bar at Four Mile House called Billy Boyle's Saloon near Fort Missoula in Montana. At around 1 a.m., two soldiers got into a scuffle. A third soldier attempted to interfere and, and stop it. And it isn't stated if Ed was one of the men, you know, if he was one of the soldiers or what, but apparently he uh, went back behind the bar and he pulled a pistol and he actually handed it to the bartender, a man named King. King laid the revolver across the table to aim it and he was just going to scare the, the soldiers. That's what he told authorities later. But he ended up firing several times. Quote, the ball was found to have passed through the heart and lodged in the backbone, end quote, of one of the soldiers. The soldier died instantly, and another bullet went astray and actually struck a civilian in the knee. It's one of those things. This is, you know, 1880s in Montana. This, there are only a couple little blurbs that talk about it. But apparently Ed and King, the bartender, were implicated. But Edward was let off on this charge. King was charged with murder and sentenced to 15 years in the Montana Territorial Prison. From there, Edward moved on to Grana, Montana, where he met Amelia Josephine Larson. And the two married on June 26, 1890, in Granite. According to newspapers, quote, only the immediate friends of the bride and groom were present. Reverend Hugh Lamond officiated, end quote. The newspaper also described Edward as the proprietor of the Saddle Rock restaurant, which he must have purchased around this time. I actually found it being transferred between several people between like 1890 to 1894 it went between like four different hands it was also described as the only restaurant in town so it was pretty interesting i had never known edward to own land for him to like settle down and somehow Mm. whatever job he's doing to to have enough to purchase the only restaurant in town seems seems interesting like a detail that i had never come across before Edward and his wife Amelia had two children together, their first daughter, Mabel, around 1892, and their second daughter, Phyllis, around 1894. They moved to Wallace, Idaho. Edward worked different jobs, even serving as a court bailiff for some time. Wallace, as we've discussed in several previous episodes, was a mining town full of vice, gambling, drinking, and, as we've discussed in previous seasons, prostitution. Edward may have struggled to raise a family in this outlaw town here. (laughs) I don't hear anything wrong with it, though. 
Yeah, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, it seems that his struggles with gambling and potentially other vices came to affect his family because on June 12th, 1899, Amelia left Edward with her two daughters and moved to Spokane, Washington. She later oh. stated that Edward was cruel and inhumane. By 1900, Ed was living by himself in Wallace, working as a bartender. He had no family to rein him in. Wait, so she took the girls? or Yeah, she girls? took the girls. Yeah. Oh, okay, I misheard you. Okay. So I'm going to move on to October of 1900. Matthew Maley was an old bachelor who owned a cigar shop in Wallace, Idaho. One newspaper article described him as an Idaho pioneer, and he had lived in the community for 12 to 14 years and was well-liked in town and seemed to follow a pretty regular routine with fellow shopkeepers. On October 1st, 1900, he was seen to enter the store about 6 a.m. with, quote, a tall, slim man about 6 o'clock, end quote, in the morning. According to one account from the Spokane Chronicle, quote, Maley was out nearly all night last night, but is said to have been usually a steady, sober man, end quote. It was unlike Matthew Maley to not be open and sweeping the front stoop. Around 8.30 a.m., James Lyman, who owned the tailor shop next door, attempted to enter the shop to purchase a cigar to start the day. The door was locked. He peeked through the window and thought he saw blood creeping from under the counter. He also thought he could see a man's foot near the counter. He alerted the authorities. City Marshal J.W. McGinnis arrived and peered in. His initial thought was that Matthew Maley had committed suicide. He broke the door to enter the business. The scene he crossed was grisly. Quote, There behind the counter was the body of the old man, his head crushed by an iron bar, his throat cut, stone dead. End quote. His skull was clearly crushed in three places with an 18-inch long by 2-inch wide iron bar, which sat next to the body, covered in blood and hair. The heavy-duty bar was a mining tool used to screen ore. Quote, Over the head of the victim was thrown some underclothing, and when it was removed, there was found a pillowcase drawn tightly over the face, the ends being tucked under the head. When the pillowcase was removed, two handkerchiefs were found on the throat, under which was a gash an inch and a half long. End quote. Oh, oh man. Whew. Quote, an examination of the premises showed that the safe was locked, the money drawer undisturbed, and a watch was on the corpse, end quote. The only apparent item that was missing from the store was a key, which would have been used to lock the door when the assailant left. Soon after, though, they actually accessed the safe and discovered, according to his books, that about $980 was missing. Now, on October 1st, strangely, Ed Rice stumbled across some money and around 6:20 a.m he pulled into the bank saloon where he had roomed and asked richard foley a bartender at the saloon for a drink so 6:20 a.m he's asking for a drink richard said ed took five or six nervous shots and then richard noticed that ed's knees were wet and asked him if it was water or grease and one document it even said that you know did you lick your wife did you beat your wife is that something from mm -hmm. her Quote, Rice rubbed his hands over it and said it was water. An hour or two later, he came back wearing new pants, end quote. 
That morning, he stopped by the clothing shop of D.W. Michaels and purchased a new pair. Quote, Rice had changed them there, taking the old pants with him. But he also bought a new hat, leaving the old one until he should call for it. End quote. Ed left the store and took the pants to the bank saloon. That afternoon, with his newly acquired money, he went around town paying off his debts. Meanwhile, Sheriff Sutherland investigated every detail of Matthew Maley's body. He decided to take the handkerchief to the laundromat to have the clotted blood removed. Once clean, he noted a faint mark on the corner, the letters E.D. He asked the washer whose laundry it was. She said, Ed Baldy Rice. Sheriff Sutherland immediately arrested Edward. He had a small knife without a handle in his pocket that was confiscated by the officer. When he was taken back to the jail and his new pants were stripped, part of his underwear near the knees was bloody. So, they've got a bit on Edward here. Apparently in the town, though, everybody was up in arms at first. They didn't think that he could be capable of something like that. On October 11th, a grand jury brought a grand bill against Ed. His trial began on October 23rd, and many jurors were excused because they objected to convicting a man guilty of murder on circumstantial evidence. On October 26th, testimony was heard. This is where the motive comes out. The courthouse was full of spectators who heard from 11 men who took the stand and reported that Ed paid off his debts with cash and $20 gold pieces. He owed nearly a dozen people money, and suddenly, on October 1st, he had the money to pay them all off. The defense objected, saying that the state had no evidence to show that Matthew had had the money on him before his death or that these were his gold coins or cash. The court overruled the objection, and the testimony held. Next, Dr. Stone, who performed the autopsy, identified a piece of Matthew's skull for the court to show how the iron bar was used to brutally smash his brain. He documented seven total wounds to the head, face, and throat. Quote, in his opinion, the blows on the head were administered before the throat was cut, end quote. The clothing clerk, D.W. Michaels, whom Edward purchased a new outfit from that day, identified the pants with a bloodstain found in the bank saloon. Sheriff Sutherland made a break in the case when he searched the bank saloon where Edward slept. While scouring the apartment, he found the pants, quote, shoved down a hole between the ceiling and weatherboarding where a hole was cut once to extinguish a fire. The pants show a little blood about the knees, but have been recently washed. In the pocket was a small bit of a knife handle, which fits exactly into the knife which was on Rice when he was arrested, end quote. And so in these pants that have bloody knees, they also find basically the end cap of this little knife that was found on him when he was arrested. Wallace Laundress, Rose Swalthit, took the stand and identified the handkerchiefs tied around Matthew's neck as belonging to Edward Rice. The next day, the defense fought long and hard to prevent Matthew Maley's record books from being admitted into court. The prosecution won out and, quote, According to the cash book, the amount of cash in the safe when it was opened after the murder was nearly $1,000 less than it should have been. Witnesses testified to Maley carrying considerable money on his person, carrying bills in a side pocket and gold in his hip pocket. The cashier of the First National Bank testified that about once a month, shortly after payday, Maley would come with checks. It has been the custom of the bank to pay out gold exclusively unless money of other kinds was asked for. 
the usual payment of considerable amounts being paid in $20 gold pieces, end quote. The jury took 10 minutes to come to a sentence. Edward Rice was guilty of murder in the first degree and should be hanged for the crime. Edward Rice was sentenced to be hanged on December 31st, quote, the last day of the century, end quote. Other than being severely pale, Edward didn't show any emotion to the sentencing. On the same day, a judge in Spokane, Washington, granted Amelia a divorce from Edward. Quote, here the woman gave down completely and between her sobs attempted to answer other questions put by the court. The Rice murder case is one that has been heard all over the country, end quote. The Spokane Chronicle article from that date lists all the details about their marriage, children, and confirms the divorce and granting of custody of the daughters to Amelia. Quote, the defendant, without cause or provocation, cruelly abused and ill-treated the plaintiff and failed and neglected and refused to make any provisions for the support of the plaintiff and her minor children, end quote. And actually, according to this uh, newspaper article, Amelia also received a plot, this Lot 22 Block 2 of Albion Heights in Spokane, Washington. So I, I was super surprised to find that Edward owned a restaurant. He owned some land in Spokane. I don't know how he was doing this, if it was maybe through gambling winnings or around the time that he was actually discharged from the military they actually started to make funds for soldiers that were released on disability. And so he may have just been living off of this pension from the army. Regardless, Edward is brought to the prison. This is his intake. Edward Rice, number 788, received from Shoshone County on November 11th, 1900. Crime, murder in the first degree. Sentence, death, age 43 years old. Occupation, timber and water. Five feet, seven inches tall. He had a dark complexion, 183 pounds, dark and gray hair, light brown eyes, married and separated and has two children. His father died when he was 22 years old. His mother died when he was 31 years old. He left home at the age of 14. He was raised Catholic and had religious instruction and went to Sunday school, but wasn't a member of the church. He could read and attended school one year. He was a moderate drinker and he smoked. He had no former imprisonment. His closest living relative was Dr. George L. Rice in Hanover, Pennsylvania. His teeth were in poor condition. He had a mustache. He wore a size 6 boot, and he had $2.60 in his pocket when he arrived. While in prison, Edward seemed to struggle. According to later articles in the Idaho Statesman, quote, He has shown signs of mental derangement, which is most plainly evidenced in his rambling talk. He being unable to keep his mind upon any one subject for any length of time. He's also shown the most abject fear at times, claiming that people were lying in wait to kill him. End quote. The week of Christmas, Warden John Haley was gearing up for the execution, writing invitations for witnesses to the hanging. Edward was in solitary confinement under the death watch. Attorney Charles Miller actually took up Edward's case and immediately began to appeal. This is on Christmas Eve. On December 26th, less than a week before the execution, Miller filed a notice of appeal to the state Supreme Court and the county attorney, which granted a stay of execution. 
Attorneys incorporate around 100 exceptions into these appeals, hoping for at least one to show any form of prejudicial error, which would grant a new trial and potentially a new outcome like a life sentence. And they were saying that Edward said that he had lost these handkerchiefs quite a while back. He didn't know where they were and that washing them, you know, ruined them as evidence. And there was actually some pretty sound exceptions that they were incorporating in this. His next trial was actually scheduled for April in Lewiston, Idaho. He was taken out of his cell and, quote, allowed out in the air with a guard by his side, end quote, on the 26th when this stay is is granted. And it was the first time he had been out of his cell for quite some time. On January 1st, 1901, New Year's Day, a day after his original execution date, Edward somehow got a hold of an iron case knife that was sharpened to a razor's edge. And I just want to warn listeners right now, if you are uncomfortable with suicide, please skip ahead like five minutes. In cell number one in the 1890s cell house, facing the Rose Garden and within eight feet of a watchful guard, Edward wedged iron between the cell door and the locking lever mechanism in his cell. He hung his coat up to separate himself from the watchful guard nearby. He brought the iron case knife to his throat cut a gash 10 inches long from ear to ear in an attempt at suicide. He severed his windpipe. With blood on his fingers, it appeared that he wrote the word non, N-A-N, on the wall before, quote, the wheezing sound made by the wind passing through the wound attracted the attention of a guard, end quote. He had failed to pierce his jugular vein. After guards unlocked the door and saw Ed's bleeding, quote, the most ghastly sight he had ever seen and one he wishes never to see again, quote. Collister was called via the telephone and rushed to the prison. Warden Haley was called in and after making sure Edward was comfortable, asked him if he had anything to say, quote, don't do anything, let me die, I want to die, end quote. The warden pointed out the NAN written on the wall and asked Edward what he meant. Edward was handed a pencil, and he wrote on the wall, Not guilty. Not guilty. Twice. And he spelt guilty G-I-L-T-Y. While they waited for Dr. Collister, the guards actually pulled Edward out into the corridor to provide plenty of light and air. Dr. Collister arrived and cleaned the wound and used 24 stitches to sew up his throat. After his neck was bandaged and he was placed back in his bed, Through a whisper, he asked for a cup of coffee, which was refused. He then told Warden Haley, quote, Those men, the regular convicts, do not like me. They have arranged to take me out tonight and hang me. I do not want to hang, yet I want to die. I am innocent, end quote. The warden and the guards noticed that he was not a stable man. Quote, It is the opinion of the warden and guards that this trouble... The dread of death on the scaffold has unhinged his mind, end quote. Two days later, Dr. Collister allowed Edward to have some gruel. It was his first meal. He made Edward keep the bandages on. And explaining how Edward missed his jugular vein, Dr. Collister explained it was because Ed popped his head completely back while he made the 10-inch gash. Quote, this action was that of an ignorant man, and it saved the fellow's life. As he threw his head back, it caused the jugular vein to set back hard against the neck bone, thus protecting it from the knife, end quote. 
I, I just, like, actually can't imagine being a doctor and seeing this man who is clearly despondent, mentally unwell, whatever thing he might be going through, and being like, you idiot, this is how you should have done it. Like, what? Do I hear that right? Yeah, I was surprised that this was printed in the newspaper, though. If he had not, you know, popped his head back, he probably could have completed it. And there's also a lot of talk in the newspaper about this iron knife. Usually they had little silver dull knives that they got to use, and he ate all of his meals with the guard at a table there in the corridor. And so they were like, we're pretty certain that a fellow convict actually gave him this knife. And we will prosecute whoever we find out it to be. And they actually don't ever find out who gave him that case knife. Actually, Edward told a guard, what a cussed fool I have made of myself, but I am innocent, end quote. He healed and subsided primarily on what the Idaho statesman described as beef tea, which was probably just like broth, yeah. Bone, bone broth like would have enough nutrients to keep you alive. Too. Yeah. <laughs> In May, Edward again began showing signs of severe paranoia that people were out to get him. This happened a couple of weeks before his May 27th hearing scheduled with the Supreme Court, so that date got pushed back from April. In June, the Supreme Court affirmed the lower court's original judgment. Edward Rice was condemned to hang. It is important to note that amid all of this, a new warden was actually appointed between the January 1st suicide attempt and the resentencing. Warden Haley was replaced by Warden Arney. Also, there are only two cell houses in existence at this time, just to place it for folks who visit the site, the Territorial Prison and the 1890 Cell House. And the prison population at this time was around 122 men. It's pretty full. It's near capacity. So... On October 4th, 1901, Edward was brought back to Wallace by Sheriff Sutherland for his resentencing. He walked into the courtroom without any appearance of being upset or agitated. Quote, when told to stand up, he arose, folded his arms, and let his eyes move carelessly over the crowd as the judge read the charge against him. The judge read the sentence. Sometime between the hours of 8 and 2 o'clock on the 30th day of November, 1901, you shall be hanged by the neck till you are dead, end quote. So his new date was set November 30th, 1901. Warden Arney and Guard Donnelly brought Ed back to Boise from Wallace. Quote, it required 33 hours to make the trip, and during that time, Rice did not close his eyes. Neither did he yawn, and he scarcely winked during the entire trip. The officers observed him many times when he could not see them, and they are satisfied he was not shamming, end quote. They noted that others had witnessed him spending days and nights in a daze just staring out into the void. Sane? There's some questions there. So much so that William Bora had also crossed paths with Ed while working on a trial of Paul Conkren and, quote, felt sufficiently interested in him to call to see him and was then convinced of the insanity of the prisoner, end quote. So while not Edward's attorney, William Bora actually felt that somebody should stand up for him and have his mental state examined. And so he actually asked for three doctors, local doctors, to check him out, including Dr. Dubois, 
who was the prison physician, Dr. McCullough, and Dr. Collister. All three of them independently analyze Edward's condition. Dr. McCullough and Dr. Du Bois were both convinced that Ed was insane. Dr. Collister wasn't so sure. Mm. He refused to sign the affidavit, feeling that Edward was in his right mind. The certificate was given to Governor Hunt with the signatures of Du Bois and McCullough, and he called for a meeting of the Board of Pardons, including Warden Arney and Dr. Du Bois. After a full day of discussion and Dr. Du Bois altering his statement that Ed Rice maybe wasn't insane, but, quote, a pervert, end quote, at 11 p.m., what? the final announcement was made. Edward Rice would hang the following morning. When William Borough was asked if he wanted to take any further steps in the appeal process, he, quote, replied he did not feel called upon to do so, end quote. I have to say, like, after learning about all the cool things Dr. Collister did, this is um, kind of a bummer. Yeah, I, I feel the same, Sky. Like, what an awful mark on his record. Collister did so many great things, but Collister mm-hmm. did not have any sympathy for Rice, that's for sure. Yeah. At all. In my mind, I think that they all thought that this was just a play on the insanity plea, that Ed Rice was just trying to game them. But it, it is interesting that, like, the warden was like, yeah, he did not close his eyes for 33 hours. He just kind of sat and stared in the void. What was the comment that, like, okay, well, maybe he's not insane, but he's definitely a pervert. I don't know if, if pervert, if it means the same that we think of it today. Like, That's I think, true. Like a perverted mind. Like, there's something yeah. off about him. Maybe he's not insane, but like if if he is still having his incontinence issue, if he's like wetting his bed mm. in, in a prison cell house. But like, what else would it be then? <laughs> <laughs> like, and I obviously we know that of course the mental health is so much more nuanced than just sane or insane. Yeah, but and I think that's it. It's like a level of insanity, but it's not quite the threshold of insanity that they are calling for. He still seems to eat well and seems to be in decent spirits, despite just kind of being a little odd and a little off. Other than these little bouts of paranoia that he has, which all seem to coincide with dates before he goes to a judge, his like paranoia that people are out to get me all seems to coincide with him going before a judge, and it's not consistent. But there's also this mention, you know, at the beginning that he just kind of rambles and he can't focus on one topic. So there's something going on. And clearly, like, the pressure of being condemned to die would affect anybody. And if you're already a little bit off, I think it's going to really amplify whatever mental issues that you're going through. I think this would have been so, so hard. And I think William Bora, like, for him to even go to bat, to be like, hey, you know, let's hold on. Let's just take a second. Let's look into this. It kind of shows the sway of Dr. Collister as well, that, you know, his one nay versus these two doctors' yays to him being insane, like, outweighed Mm -hmm. and swayed the governor to be like, yeah, sorry, Dr. Collister's saying no. I'm going to have to agree with them, and we're going to still hang this guy. All right, so Warden Arney followed all regulations for executions. In 1899, the state actually decided to standardize executions because prior to that, they were actually all done on the county level. And the scaffold that was actually brought to the prison 
had been used in Silver City and in Ada County in the 1890s, just prior. This scaffold was actually brought to the state penitentiary where it would be utilized for the remainder of the executions at the site, erected here in the Rose Garden. Twelve citizens from Ada County were actually notified that they had to be present to witness the execution, which is still common today. You still need witnesses to make sure that it's done humanely. Edward was actually allowed to invite five people as well. And I know today, just in visiting the current Idaho Department of Corrections execution chamber, there are two separated sides for the family of the victim to come and attend, and then for journalists and other witnesses that are required to come. So not super uncommon, but I thought it was interesting that Edward could invite folks. It was unclear which prosecutor had to be in attendance, that of where the crime was committed in Wallace or of where the execution takes place in Boise. So both prosecutors had to come and attend and witness. Quote, only a few invitations will be issued it not being the invitation to have any crowd present, end quote. So Warden Arney definitely didn't want people to come and watch this. Beyond that, he further prevented it from turning into like a circus by uh, enclosing the gallows with a white sheet of muslin to prevent anyone outside of those dozen or so men from viewing the hanging. So Edward Rice, in his cell, watched the gallows being constructed in the Rose Garden, and guards raised the scaffold. They're hammering these, this wooden platform in place. They're testing out the trap door. They're stretching and setting the sturdy three-fourths-inch rope purchased from Portland. Edward slept well from about midnight to 4 a.m. He got up at 6 a.m., had a cup of coffee, and a plate of hotcakes. He was served his final meal, breakfast, shortly after. And it didn't specify what breakfast was that day, but we can imagine probably maybe eggs, uh, some bacon, piece of toast. His prison clothes, most likely stripes, were swapped out for a nice black suit. On November 30th, 1901, at 8 a.m., Edward Rice was led to the gallows. He climbed the steps, unaided and unfazed by his fate. Warden Arney read him the death warrant. He invited a Catholic priest, Father Vander Velden, who read from the Bible for about five minutes while Edward listened intently. The priest put a crucifix to Edward's lips. The priest then asked him if he had anything to say. Quote, I have much to talk about, but there is lots of time, Father. And there are actually different quotes that I found in different newspapers. One said, I am afraid of no harm. I don't think you are doing right to put me out of this world. There is lots of time. And the father actually said, oh no, there is no time. The death warrant has been read, end quote. Once the scripture was over, Edward's collar was removed, and he was bound with ropes around his knees and around his waist and his elbows. A black cap was placed over Edward's face. Warden Arney asked the guards on the gallows if they were ready. Hearing their affirmation, he gave the order at 8.15 a.m. The trap was sprung. Edward dropped five feet, five inches to the end of the rope. Quote, there was a spasmatic uprising in the left hand, pinioned though the arms were, a twitching of the fingers, a heaving of the breast, 
and then a physician with hand on pulse slowly counted the seconds that would record that Ed Rice had paid the penalty of his crime. His soul, sin-stained and hardened, yet withal immortal and perhaps repentant, at least not to be judged by earthly judges, had been summoned before its maker. The body swung not to the right nor the left, the rope made not a single twist, but facing the sun in the eastern sky, like one standing erect, all that was mortal of Ed Rice was there before his fellows, while the tide of life fast ebbed away. The neck was broken by the fall. End quote. His body was, was taken down from the rope, and he was placed in a pine box, and at noon, four guards and the warden and the uh, priest led him to the prison cemetery where they held a small ceremony and he was buried in an unmarked grave and that is the story of edward rice number 788 anthony i'm not trying to cry on a friday afternoon I my know. guy oh man it's just Oh, man, I've been wanting to cover on the podcast, and it's the first state-sanctioned execution here at the site. Uh, Prior to that, Tombiago, which we will cover in a a future season, happened in the Idaho Territory here at the Territorial Prison, but it's the first, like, state-sanctioned one in, in 1901. Well, maybe we should end on, like, something happy, like, maybe over the season. Like, what's been your favorite thing? this season or even like broadly like what has been your like what's been making you happy recently let's <laughs> let's uh not end this this season and this year on such a sad note like even though this semester has been very busy for me and the podcast has you know extended that workload like I just am so grateful to be able to do it still and that even though we're busy that like the passion that you and I clearly both have crying, you know, and, and taking these stories like so much to heart. Like it's Anthony, what the heck? This is your <laughs> fault. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, just like how grateful I am for you guys. And gosh, like how fun is it that we get to do this, you know, like, and, and how I think meaningful, like, I think we're doing meaningful work. And maybe that's too, like, self-aggrandizing and, and contributing too much. But I don't know. I just think all of these stories deserve to be told, and that's why I wanted to do it. And so, like, I think we covered a lot of really interesting and, like, significant stories. I think that's so great. And I didn't mean to cry because I was like, let's... I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm crying because <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> oh, Scott. Uh, but no, like... Yeah, it's just, it's been like a good year, you know? Yeah. Season-wise, like my life-wise, 30's been a good decade already, you know? That's great. So like, <laughs> I'm just like grateful. I'm just like grateful for everything. <laughs> okay, someone say something happy so I stop <laughs> crying. When working with the new tour guides, I've often told them a tour should encompass a little bit of everything. Um, a tour should not just be dark. But it should have funny moments, it should have sad moments, it should have um, intense moments, it should have everything. Because I feel you wouldn't think a penitentiary to be so 
perfectly representative of all aspects of humanity but you can find all aspects of humanity here in the prison and yeah some there are some truly horrible dark things associated with this place or took place in this place but at the other side you see stories of redemption and hope and the work is so meaningful and i i like you sky i'm grateful to be working with with such a great team here with both of you but I'm also so grateful to be able to try and and look at those aspects of humanity, even even when it can be hard, mm-hmm. even when it can be hard. Yeah, doing this work is it can be so emotionally draining, but so rewarding too. And this year has been amazing, like getting settled into my new position, and I'm so happy to have staff that are so dedicated and work so hard and. I just want to congratulate Samuel. Samuel came in as a fan of the show, and and he learned to research and do all this tour. And this last season, he's helped tremendously in recording the episode. And then the afterward, the, the editing aspect, and that's something that the relief I've had knowing that somebody who's so passionate about sharing this stories you know it's like i i've had had this baby with sky <laughs> that's so weird to <laughs> okay, say sky. all right <laughs> this podcast okay. with sky <laughs> <laughs> i know now my wife's going to be like wait what uh, sorry <laughs> my, sky my parents but we, are like um we've created Becky, this thing I, together i'm so sorry it came out this way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Guy and I have created this thing together, and now I can, you know, pass it on to to Samuel to really take uh, a lot of ownership and lead on. And it's just it just makes me so happy that you know that this can continue, and it's with the same passion, but now with more creativity, more more focus than I could ever give it. So, podcast wise, this has been so much fun. And I know that it's just going to get even better in future seasons. So, mm-hmm. ah, I love making this with you guys, and uh, I'm I love our listeners too. The comments on our Facebook group and our Instagram, like all of you, are amazing, and mm-hmm. it just you know that's what keeps us going as well. You know, it's we learn so much about the site, but to hear that people are listening, like that, just makes my it's, whole day. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate that. But please, listeners, don't think that Anthony is stepping out of the podcast. That's <laughs> not what's going on. I know you did kind of make it seem that you were just like, so like, I'm so happy to pass it on and like, you'll never hear from me Dang again. And the, I was like, okay, it's <laughs> there's just another contributor. Before. No one's being replaced. <laughs> it, yeah. I, I'm have been really grateful i learned i've learned so much about research and editing and then there's been a bit of a learning curve but i feel like uh, with each season i'm getting better and it's fun to come in on something that you've already have such an established fan base one incredible achievement of the show and of anthony and sky both is uh this year they've reached a hundred nineteen thousand listens mm-hmm. Which is pretty incredible for a state podcast. For a like niche little funny little podcast. That's always what I tell people is like it's so specific. Yeah. And I've been so thankful that it has done so well. Um, And that is, of course, due to the listeners. Like, thank thank you, all of you. 
Well, and of course, we always appreciate input from listeners. We're actually going to be attaching a survey to this episode. Please let us know and be honest. If if there are things you didn't like, things you did like, this helps us make sure we're reaching the standards that we we know you as listeners deserve and hopefully being able to tell history in in both an accurate but also a fun way. Yeah, find the link in the description of this episode. Find it in our Facebook group page. Just take a survey. Tell us what what you want to hear more of and uh, it'll just help us improve and grow and, you know, with more staff dedicated to telling stories um, we have a, a big opportunity to to really get the things that you guys want to hear. So, oh, man. Well, with that, everybody, thank you so much. Happy holidays. I mm-hmm. hope that this episode didn't ruin you like it ruined us. <laughs> Listen, I'll I'll uh, I'll make a plug for my girl Cher's Christmas album. It will cheer you right up because that's absolutely what I'm going to go listen to as soon as we stop recording. You know what? Will you send me a link I want to listen to? <laughs> DJ play a Christmas song. I will send it to you for sure. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, everybody, do your own time. Take care, everybody. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.